This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Thieves Tools When it comes to anything remotely technological, fantasy games like Dungeons & Dragons are set in pretty much the most boring era of human history. That's probably why we have to add magic. And dragons. The problem is that the Middle Ages, aka the Medieval Period, aka the Dark Ages, are called Middle and Dark for a reason. Well, actually two reasons. And yes, this does have to do with thieves' tools, which is our word of the week. Trust us. We'll get there. We always do. The Middle Ages is a period of European human history that begins with the fall of Rome in 500 CE, the last great empire of the Classical Age, and ends with the Renaissance in about 1500 CE. Now, the Classical Age was filled with great empires and great discoveries and great thinkers. All those Greeks and Romans with their amazing buildings and their libraries and their philosophers and their technology. The Renaissance literally means rebirth because it was a cultural and intellectual flourishing of society. And the best you can say for the Middle Ages is that they came in between. A thousand years of decline and a buildup toward a rebirth. And because the early Middle Ages were typified with population decline, a movement away from urban centers to a more rural agrarian lifestyle, invasions, wars, and a lack of education, very few good written records exist from the period after the fall of Rome. So the age was dark because civilization was in darkness and because we didn't know much about it. Nowadays, scholars are coming around to the idea that the age wasn't so dark for European human civilization. In point of fact, starting around the year 1000, Europe enjoyed a massive population explosion due to amazing advances in farming technology, and the surplus of food allowed for the pursuit of other technological advances. Social structures were changing as well, and so the late medieval period is now recognized as more of a warm-up act for the Renaissance. Still. This leaves us here at the Word of the Week with an interesting problem. Unless you really want to talk about some neat new things to do with a plow, whenever we discuss technological development, we discover that the really cool stuff either happened before the world that corresponds to D&D and got forgotten, or else it came after D&D. We experienced that frustration with our episode on polearms when we pointed out that the best polearms post-date D&D by a few hundred years. And we experienced it again last week when we tried to find interesting things to say about lighting. Now, here we are again, facing this same dilemma when it comes to talking about locks, and lockpicks, and general security. The thing is, when the Dungeons & Dragons rogue breaks out her trusty thieves' tools and works a lock over, it seems cool. We picture her fiddling with a whole collection of complicated, weirdly shaped tools and playing some sort of Skyrim-esque minigame in the dark, while the party stands ready to deal with the guards that are searching for them. She fiddles, she fidgets, she plies her ancient and secret art. And then, click, the lock opens. She's the hero, and everyone wonders how she did it. In reality, Medieval locks sucked. They really sucked. People didn't trust locks. And one of the coolest stories about regaining the trust in locks doesn't come around until the 1700s. And that's late enough that all the dragons are extinct, all the elves have gone off to the west, and the king's guards suddenly appear and put a flintlock pistol to the poor rogue's head. 
But before we get to medieval locks and why they were so terrible and how lockpicking works, let's take a moment to marvel at how old locks actually are. Because locks have been around a long time, and just to fit the pattern, the really old locks were actually way cooler than the medieval locks. The oldest known mechanical lock ever found by archaeologists is over 4,000 years old. It came from the Palace of Khorsabad in Nineveh. Once upon a time, Nineveh was the biggest city in the world. It was a capital of Assyria, and it was named for an Aramaic word that meant place of fish. Scholars theorize this referred to a river goddess who protected the city, but it might just have been a statement about how good the fishing was there. Nineveh was founded in 6000 BCE and built on a fault line alongside the Tigris River in Upper Mesopotamia. It was a place of trade and a place of religious worship. It was also a place that suffered damage from multiple earthquakes. But what ultimately destroyed Nineveh was not earthquakes or vengeful fish gods. It was destroyed by its own subjugated peoples. Around 612 BCE, Assyria was torn apart by civil war. A variety of subjugated peoples, Chaldeans, Babylonians, Sumerians, and Scythians, rose up against the Neo-Assyrian Empire that ruled over them. This culminated in a great battle at Nineveh. The allied rebel forces sacked the city, and Nineveh was abandoned and went into ruin. The lock that archaeologists discovered was the oldest known example of something called the Egyptian lock, so named because of its widespread popularity in Egypt. And the Egyptian lock is an example of the first two main types of locks. It's an example of the pin tumbler lock. What's really amazing is that the pin tumbler is the more advanced type of lock, and it is not the lock that spread across Europe. The other type of lock, the ward lock, was first developed by the Romans, and it was that lock that spread across Europe. Even more interestingly, the pin tumbler lock is the basis for modern lock design. It was really that advanced. Let's talk about how locks actually work, though. At least, let's talk about how ancient and medieval locks work, because our concept of modern door locks is a little weird. Ancient and medieval locks used a bolt system, essentially a solid chunk of something, usually wood, extended from the door and into a hole or slot in the door frame. With the bolt extended, the door couldn't be opened. With the bolt retracted, the door was free to open. Simple, right? In point of fact, the simplest of door locks was just a wooden bolt with a notch in it inside a channel in the door. You would slip a hook into a hole in the door and use it to retract the bolt. You didn't need a fancy key for this kind of lock. Any hook-shaped thing would do. Obviously, these sorts of things were less door locks and more door latches. They just kept the door from opening unless you wanted it to. The idea of modern doorknobs and door levers wouldn't come around for many, many years. In fact, most of the doors in your average dungeon should just pull or push open as easily as that. The technology for turnable doorknobs and door latches just shouldn't exist. A true lock works by putting some sort of device between the bolt and the person trying to get inside. For example, take the ward lock. This is the simpler of the two types. Instead of a hook-shaped thingy that goes into the keyhole and slides the bolt out of the way, you have a key-shaped thingy. Insert it, turn it, and it slides the bolt out of the way. The problem with that design is any key-shaped thing of roughly the right size will open the lock. So, inside the lock, you add little barriers that keep the key from turning unless it's just the right shape. Those little barriers inside the lock that get in the way of the key 
are called wards, hence ward locks. Now, a ward lock isn't a terribly complicated lock to design. It's just a channel, a sliding bolt, and some protrusions to get in the way of the wrong key. And they are actually very easy to defeat, but not by picking the lock. Instead, because of the simplicity of the design, it's pretty easy to make very generic keys that avoid the wards. There's only so many shapes you can make the wards. Enter the skeleton key. A skeleton key is a simple key that has minimal protrusions and a very low profile so it tends to avoid the wards in a lock. In fact, once upon a time, all European keys that opened ward locks were called skeleton keys because they had a skeletal appearance. Because most locksmiths followed similar patterns for the wards in their locks, if you managed to get a key for a lock made by a particular locksmith and filed it down enough, you could make a skeleton key that would conform to most of the locks made by that locksmith. The point is, the ward lock was not terribly secure. Any burglar worth her salt would carry a set of skeleton keys made for a variety of ward lock sizes and shapes. But the Egyptian lock was more complicated. It used a pin tumbler system. The bolt that secured the door was attached to a tumbler, a cylinder, that was inserted into the door. The tumbler could rotate, and that would cause the bolt to rotate into the channel in the door frame, securing it. To turn the tumbler, you inserted a key. But that's just a tumbler system. Where did the pins come in? Imagine you drilled holes in the top of the tumbler, and in the door above the tumbler, and you put a series of little pins in those holes. Gravity pulls the pins down so that they prevent the tumbler from turning. If you insert something into the lock channel that pushes those pins out of the way, you can turn the tumbler. Of course, the pins varied in length, so the key had these little raised ridges and grooves designed to accommodate the proper length of pin. And when you think of picking a lock, it's this type of lock that you're thinking of picking. How do you pick a lock like this? Well, you start with a tool called a torsion wrench. It's basically an L-shaped lever you can stick in the lock to apply torque, rotational force. And then you use other little tools, the actual picks, to move the pins out of the way of the tumbler one by one. You find the first pin and push it up out of the tumbler while applying pressure to the torsion wrench. Once you get it to just the right height, it gets stuck because of the torque you're applying. And then you move on to the second pin and so on until all the pins are stuck out of the way and you can turn the tumbler freely. Now, good burglars knew some shortcuts. For example, bumping or raking was a common way to start picking a lock. You applied pressure to the torsion wrench and you raked the jagged little pick in and out, trying to jostle the pins. If you got lucky, some of the pins would get jostled out of the way and get stuck. Then, you only had to work a couple of the more stubborn pins. So. Why did ward locks catch on and pin tumbler locks get forgotten? Well, there isn't really a great answer, but it appears that pin tumbler locks were just too complicated and hard to make. The earliest examples were all made of wood because all of the complicated drilling and shaping couldn't be done with metalworking techniques as they existed at the time. And even making them out of wood was extremely complicated. In fact, even early ward locks were all wooden. It wasn't until around 870 CE that the first all-metal locks were created. Those all-metal ward locks relied on the ability to work iron cold. See, you couldn't forge a lock because it was too precise. You couldn't keep the iron at the right temperature long enough for that kind of precision work. But as precision ironwork developed and smiths developed tools that let them groove, drill, and file iron while it was cold, it became possible to make more intricate and smaller devices. 
like keys and locks. It's also interesting to note that traveling locks, also called padlocks, have been around since Roman times. These are basically a self-contained lock and shackle system. When closed and locked, the shackle is held in place by the lock mechanism. Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, and the Chinese all developed ward-lock-style padlocks. Some were made partially out of wood. Others were bronze or brass. But because of the lack of good metalworking techniques, they were fairly crude and very easy to defeat. As noted, though, ward-type locks weren't terribly secure, and pin-tumbler locks were complicated, expensive, and extremely rare. So one of the most common ways to defeat a thief had nothing to do with the lock at all. If you had, say, a chest you wanted to keep people out of, one of the most common techniques to confound a thief was to hide the lock. Many, many traveling chests and strong boxes were elaborately decorated with metalwork. Some doors were, too. And the keyhole in the chest was entirely false. It did nothing. The real keyhole was hidden somewhere else on the chest. It was covered, and it was concealed among the complicated metal and woodwork. So how can you use this information in your game? Well, if you want to be pedantic and boring, you can decree that lockpicking in your game is simply a matter of the rogue taking out a ring of skeleton keys and trying them, one after the other, until they manage to open the ward lock. Or you can be more interesting and decide that dwarven pin-tumbler lock technology diffused through the world centuries ago. But the idea of keyholes hidden in the decorative metalwork of a strongbox or concealed inside a secret sliding panel is a pretty fun one. Even if you don't go with that idea though, at least you know what's in a set of thieves tools now. A ring of various skeleton keys, a few L-shaped torsion wrenches, and a collection of assorted picks of various sizes and shapes. And if none of that appeals, you can always just do what the Emperor of Anam did to confound rogues. He used to pack his valuables in wooden boxes and submerge them in pools around his palace where they were protected by guardian angels. Guardian angels was what he called his palace crocodiles. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com